You're Going to Die, the podcast is brought to you by YG2D, a 501c3 nonprofit bringing diverse communities creatively into the conversation of death and dying, inspiring life by unabashedly sourcing our shared mortality. To find out more, visit www.yg2d.com. Sometimes you need to have a conversation with somebody out in the world to remember why you just got to keep doing what you do, even when it's hard. And this episode's conversation gave me a dose of that. Hey, everybody. Welcome to You're Going to Die, the podcast. You know, before I go on, I just want to say, especially considering the 40 billion podcasts that started during the pandemic, you right now chose to listen to this podcast. And so thank you so much for making time for us here. It means a ton considering that fact. So much to choose from. Here you are. So thank you so much. My name is Ned Buskirk. I am your host of this Creatively Conscious Mortality podcast. We're so glad to be in your ear. I want to say that I met Claire Bidwell-Smith, this episode's guest, during the pandemic. I want to say it, and I'm going to say it. Uh, The thing about that meeting is that I actually hadn't read any of Claire's books before we met. I got invited to be a part of an organization called Reimagine. And by the way, if you're listening to this episode because you're interested or compelled or want to be in the conversation of death, dying, end of life, grief, go to letsreimagine.org. Definitely go to that website and check out all the things they're up to. But Claire Bidwell-Smith was doing this lineup of talks every week with people out in the world doing work in the conversation of death, dying, end of life, grief and loss, making meaning out of all these things. And I was honored enough to be one of those guests. That's where I met Claire. Up until that point, I'd not read any of Claire's literature. Leading up to this conversation on this podcast, I did. And I cannot tell you enough If you want to read literature by a wonderful author, an incredibly gifted author, then these books that Claire has in the world, all of which connect to the conversation of grief and loss, are books you need to make time for. I would say especially to start with Claire's memoir titled The Rules of Inheritance. And then I'm just going to also recommend Anxiety, The Missing Stage of Grief. I want to name those two books because they're wonderful in specific ways. First, if you want to get to know Claire and Claire's story of loss, so then if you also have your own loss and you want to meet another human out in the world that's been through so much heartbreak, so much loss, and made meaning out of it, made a life and work, a career out of it, then reading the memoir, Rules of Inheritance, gives you that. And it gives you it so powerfully. And then anxiety, the missing stage of grief, certainly mattered to me to read because personally I deal with anxiety. And I actually felt like Claire's book highlighted how maybe I didn't even see my own anxiety as connected to grief and maybe even new grief doing the work that I do all the time with cancer patients and in the prisons and with community and their own losses. So 
two really wonderful books. I think something I want to highlight about that is one is this is the story of Claire living through her own losses, her own hugely significant losses of both her parents. And then the second book is the here's what she's done with that and and what she is offering the world because of the work she's done healing and making meaning out of those losses. Claire Bidwell-Smith is a therapist specializing in grief and the author of multiple books about grief and loss. She is committed to providing support for all kinds of people experiencing all kinds of grief. I hope you enjoy this episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast with Claire Bidwell-Smith. Yeah, yeah. I think it's just... um you know, people like us and people who do this work and people who are living with terminal diagnoses and people who have gone through immense loss, we walk with a different awareness in this life. You know, we walk through every day, every moment, every minute with an awareness that life is fleeting and precious and brutal and gorgeous. And it's hard to hold all of that all the time. You know, and so it's good to let it spill out. It's good to let it just come out everywhere in any way it does. Um, I spent a lot of years trying to keep it in or try to tamp it down or numb it. And and I realized the only way out is through. So um, I think it's beautiful that you're feeling all of this. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the only human response you can really have is just to let it wash through you and feel it all. Well, that is so good to hear. And actually it reminds me of something that I guess I hadn't really considered, which is the obvious option that we keep reminding everybody, which is a version of what you just said, like be in it, like make room to feel it. Uh, and to know like, of course, then that's what I should be doing after I come out of a space and the ways that I'm personally maybe triggered or, or moved or yeah. heartbroken. Um, it's scary though, right? Like you just get like these moments where you just feel overcome and you're like, oh my God, what am I, how do I feel all of this? And what do I do with it? And it feels really scary sometimes, but then you can have these moments where you connect with someone else and I'm like, I'm right here in it with you. I see you. We can do it together. Well, I think uniquely getting that with you here, which is why, you know, I sort of set a version of, boy, I'm grateful for a lot of things um, about you. And that is definitely something I'm feeling uh, almost like a solve that moment of just like, okay, like you for sure see where I'm at or what I'm coming out of. But it does make me think like a question that often comes up in this work. The deeper I get into it, the more I do it. I'm wondering for you, after all these years, someone would say to me like, do you need to keep doing more death and dying? Do you need like, really? Like you want to keep doing like grief. And I have to pause and think, well, geez, I don't know. Is there some other thing um, for me to do? But this is certainly for me, like the compulsion, the, the return, but also the growth. And then the, well, the next door comes out of uh, this work, right? Into the yeah. next version of it or the next opportunity to show up for it. Um, but I am wondering about that. Is there ever in these years of you having created a career and, and written so many books and made so much space for people in this conversation, do you have those moments when you think, oh gosh, could I just like pivot this career? And uh, <laughs> I have no idea what else. You know, I was in a space 
pre-pandemic where I was really questioning like, okay, I could keep going with this whole death and grief thing, or maybe I could just be like Claire, like a person in the world and not someone had asked me, who would you be without death and grief in your life? And I really couldn't come up with an answer. And for a little while that felt like kind of wrong. Like, oh, I should be able to have that answer. And then I hadn't figured out what direction I was going to go. And then the pandemic hit. And, and I think we've had this incredible cultural explosion around grief and loss and death in a beautiful way where people have begun to recognize and embrace all the ways we grieve throughout our lifetimes and all the ways we lose things. And the work began to feel more important than ever. And I, you know, I just gave myself permission to love it and know that I will always do this. And I've really deepened in it since then. And it feels like there's no going back now. I'm so far into it. And that's okay. You know, it's my life's work and I, I feel better about it than ever. And I, I just turned 45 recently and I, I feel like I've hit a new maturity level just as a human and who I was 10 years ago, 15, 20. Um, I think I've really grown very comfortable with living with this awareness. It would be mm-hmm. 20 years this year that I held my dad's hand as he mm-hmm. took his last breaths. And, you know, from those moments, you walk into the rest of your life with an awareness that um, death is always with us. And yeah. it was hard to hold that for a long time but not as much anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks for all that. Um, boy, like I said, if you could just see my notes from all the books <laughs> and right now, <laughs> even I'll, I'll send you a picture later, but Oh geez. Um, also, uh, even now, like it's funny to even do all these notes. Cause like I said, it just feels like a process of getting closer to you and your work and, and kind of mm-hmm. trying to market, you know, in front of me, which, is another direction to go in, in terms of the writing practice and putting the thing in front of you to get the perspective and to see Mm -hmm. it outside of you. Um, and just listening to you, I have so many places to go, but I guess I want to take a moment to say, um, check in with how you're doing today, knowing that you're in the midst of another move and you're returning to a city that's home and holds a lot of the story that your memoir captures in terms of at least, your return there and you're working there and you're being with your dad there when he died. Um, I guess I do want to say like, how are you today? Like, how are you feeling? How are you getting through all the things right now? I'm in a very potent moment. Um, I have three biological kids and three step kids, but uh, my three biological kids are all like um, graduating right now, preschool, elementary school, and high school. So all of that this week. Oh my gosh. And it's also their birthdays and we are moving back to Los Angeles in 10 days and I'm sitting in a sea of boxes and it's like a lot of beginnings and endings Mm -hmm. um, all just jumbled up and I have moments where I can't catch my breath. And then I have moments where I just want to sit and like be in this moment for as, as much and as in in an expansive way as possible, you know, Mm -hmm. like these, these things are so fleeting uh, and they're so important and they're so meaningful and beautiful. And so I've just kind of gotten to a place in life where I'm like, Oh, here comes, here comes this whole big bubble of everything all at once. And I'm just going to, I'm going to float in it and do my best. And you can, I think that part of, I'm part of what I'm feeling personally, uh, grateful for finishing anxiety, uh, your book, anxiety 
just like in the last couple of days coming out of a stretch where I wasn't doing as much self-care as absolutely mm-hmm. I'm clear is required, especially doing this work. I mean, honestly, yeah, I yeah, feel no, like I know I'm laughing because it's really true. <laughs> if we were just back in the restaurant, there's so many things I connect to in your story and always the caveat, right? That like, boy, I meet you here and so much understanding and knowing, I think, and parallels and really like life. Like we were in LA at the same time. Hmm. My mom was dying when your dad was dying. Uh, like the shift into what led to me being here was a shift into leaning into writing and reading and my master's in English literature. I like went to 826 LA, which I'm like, did you interview me when you were getting volunteers to work there? I'm like, what the hell? Um, but also, yeah, so special to find those moments in your memoir where you, and I think that's the power of, I think your work too. And you acknowledge it many times the experience of being so alone, being losing your mom and looking around being like, no one's lost their mom. I'm the only one that's lost their mom. And then to find a time in your life, like you found other people too, that do this work or have written books like Cheryl Strayed and the like, Mm -hmm. Oh, here's everybody, you know, just putting yourself out there eventually where suddenly it's like, Oh my gosh, you're everywhere, you know, Mm -hmm. but also like, it's not all the same. So I want to just say like, I am so like, Oh my gosh, there's so many connections. And I know it's not the same. I know that, you know, your mom died when you were 18 and just so many unique parts that are also preciously only ours. So I'm feeling that sense of connection is so important to you. It's what's pulled me through all of this. The, Mm -hmm. the more like, you know, the better it just, that's what, that's what makes me feel, you know, connected to everyone and everything when for a long time I didn't. And so, um, I love being the same. It's great. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. Okay, cool. Well, I'm feeling a lot of that and I'm connecting the restaurant industry part of our lives where I think there's just both younger (laughs) (laughs) and the best and the time when I was like, I didn't need to be doing yoga every day or breathing or meditating. Like it was just like wild and kind of out of control. And so many parts of those years after my mom died, being in those kind of contexts and it was just whatever, it was fine. But now older, a parent doing the work that I do coming out of a stretch where I really wasn't doing as much self-care as I really Mm -hmm. need to be doing now. And now being in this time, really even inspired by reading anxiety and finishing anxiety this week to like get back to the regimen of exercise and the meditation moment and the breathing and being in a day that's like the one of the first of the summer when it's so clear a version of what I think you're living in, how much there is to be done, how complicated it all is. And what I'm getting to is that you've done this commitment in your life that anxiety captures so much of to actually do the work to be someone who could be in the midst of that and have a level of okayness with things falling apart and coming together and all of it at once. And I'd love to kind of, it's like, this is my usual query in a podcast interview is an acknowledgement more than a question, but I kind of want to hear what's inspired that you could share now about that piece. You know, it's what it takes to like be in the midst. And like you said, expand because it's worth Mm -hmm. it and it's good to pay attention and hold it. You you can do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 
Oh my gosh. I think our life's greatest work as humans is to learn to sit with uncertainty and to ride the waves of anxiety that inevitably come with change and loss and growth. And um, it's never going to not be uncertain. And, you know, sometimes we fool ourselves into, we get tricked by illusions that things are certain and that we can depend on things. And, And then the rug will get pulled out inevitably at some point big, small pandemics, you know, job losses, health scares, you know, deaths, so many things. And uh, we have to come back to that place again of like, oh God, I have to sit with this. I have to sit with the not knowing of what's going to happen, not knowing if I'm going to be okay, if other people will be okay. And I think that's the really hard part. And I, I've spent, you know, a good career of fucking that up for myself. (laughs) And I swear. (laughs) <laughs> yes, you can swear. <laughs> like, you know, I've, I've, I've done, I've made all the mistakes and then I've hit rock bottom so many times that I've discovered so many incredible tools because there was nothing left to do, but like try the, mm-hmm. the stuff that seemed hard, like meditation or sobriety or, you know, yoga or whatever it was. Um, I've, I've tried so many incredible tools that have worked so well and helped me expand in so many ways. And we're never as scary as they I thought they would be, you mm-hmm. know, just sitting with my emotions, sitting with fear, sitting with anxiety, mm-hmm. um, leaning into it, you know? Um, I don't know. I, I, it's, it's a, it's a work in progress, but sure. I, these days I feel more comfortable than ever just learning how to ride those waves. Yeah. Um, one big question that connects to this, that I've been feeling after reading your memoir is, you're so, I think, understanding of that version in that part of your life, um, that version of you in that part of your life and kind of immediately feeling in a way that I related after, you know, after my mom died, um, how dark and hard and lonely and how not capable or willing or, you know, sure of the things we could do to like help ourselves during those times when we were so young. Um, but I also wanted to ask you, what is it like, did it need to be all that? Like your acceptance of it having been that way, did it need to be all that? Or is there a part of you now that can speak to what was missing that, you know, for sure you would have said yes to that. You just didn't get a chance, you know, to say yes to it wasn't offered up. It wasn't, there wasn't a moment of invitation because I think now your work is like trying to do as much as you can to tell people and connect to people in a way that I feel like our organization does who needs Mm -hmm. this and trying Mm -hmm. to put yourself up out there in a way that you've done so wonderfully because you're a brilliant writer and just the exposure of those connections and the work you do in connection with other amazing people who do work that connects, um, you know, I get that that's part of it, right? Is wanting to connect people to these resources and these, these, mm-hmm. this wisdom or the knowing and understanding. But I'm like, yeah. what during that time, the missing things that you maybe would have jumped yeah. on that you didn't get? Gosh, you know, I mean, some of them were truly missing. And I think in the last 20 years, there have been so many new organizations, books, resources, awareness around what people need to get through stuff like this, the work you do. I mean, none of that was really around. My parents both got cancer at the same time in the early 90s, and I was 13, 14, and and my mom was gone by the time I was 18. My dad died when I was 25. And this is like the late 90s, early 2000s. And 
I didn't know where to turn. I felt so alone. I didn't have siblings. I didn't have a large extended family. There was nobody really checking in on me. Um, I didn't have any kind of like real cultural or religious framework to hold me in place. You know, I've spoken to other people who have had a different experience. They may have lost both parents or gone through an immense trauma around that age, but they had a different stability in their lives than I did. And there was nobody that really stepped in to offer things to me. I mean, I didn't even realize that my panic attacks were panic attacks for like five or six years until I was in a college class or a grad Mm -hmm. school class understanding. Um, And now there's an incredible amount of resources. I think social media for all its, you know, faults also has brought about a sense of connection and availability to people who are going through really rough stuff. They can Mm -hmm. find others who understand them, see them and offer them help and support. Um, just for so long, I, I felt so alone and I really was in a lot of ways. Um, I was also angry and scared and, um, as we all are, uh, but there just, there wasn't a lot of places to turn, you know, that's what that's writing. I turned to writing. I didn't know what else to do except write and write and write. So I did. Um, and I'm really heartened now that there's so much out there for people and there's such an awareness of that, you know, this is really hard stuff and we need to help each other through it. I think community and connection is vital. Yeah. I think agreed on the social media complexities, but Mm -hmm. boy, did we not have that, you know, just to Mm -hmm. be able to go somewhere and hashtag grief uh, and see who you suddenly, (laughs) suddenly connect to. I didn't know know anybody who'd been through loss, you know, nobody. At our age too. It's like you look around and mostly people in their early twenties haven't. And so Mm -hmm. outside that circle, they're there, but there's no easy way, especially, you know, like you said, in the nineties and into the early two thousands for us to find that. And I do think now, especially in the last 10 years, the pendulum swing too. this is the thing with your parents. I wonder for me, part of it was the privacy of the cancer diagnosis and the way my mom kind of kept that stuff close to her chest and didn't really talk to me, I think as an act of protection, um, Mm -hmm. I think I was also getting taught something that I think a lot of what we're seeing in the last 10 years is a response to, which is a generation of people who really weren't teaching us to say, you can talk about this with community. You should talk about it with community. Do you have, I'm trying to kind of like return to the ways I know your parents from your books. Um, Can you speak to that influence and, and maybe even that like generational swing too? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, my dad was a World War II vet and he was like, you know, therapy, no way, you know, you don't need therapy. That's, you know, whatever. And then my mother was also very private with hers. And I think she was trying to protect me as well, as well as being in an enormous amount of denial for herself. She didn't want to face her diagnosis and her um, impending death as any more than she wanted me to face it. And so we didn't, and we didn't talk about it. Um, Very few of my parents' friends really kind of showed up after they were gone. I just had a bunch of like fuck up 20 somethings to hang out with that like didn't know anything better than I did. Um, So yeah, yeah, it was hard. And so I think that shift, I mean, I have an eighth grader who's about to go into high school in the fall and just the mental health resources available at her public school. I mean, the wellness center with like nice lighting and beanbags and like tactile things to play with. Yeah, we did not. Signs on the wall. In our 20s, let alone eighth grade. Yeah. The way my four year old can talk about his feelings, you know, that doesn't feel good when you say that, mom. (laughs) Yeah. It's a completely different 
different generation. You're totally right. And a different time, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of that swinging pendulum, yeah. um, like how much room there is now to connect and talk about it's these cool, things. It's cool though. It's great. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. It's a good time, I think, to come out of what you've lived through then and be yeah. so adept and in, in the knowing of these realities to connect like you have so well with social media and your literature. Mm -hmm. Um, What a powerful time to do this work. Mm -hmm. All that said, you know, we still have a ways to go for sure. sure. I think, you know, I, I see clients all day long on zoom and in person who've gone through losses, recent old, and they still are needing permission to grieve, you know, because we have so many cultural messages Mm -hmm. and, parameters around grief. Um, you can only grieve for so long. This is what grief looks like and doesn't look like, or people Mm -hmm. get scared to meet you in your grief. And so Mm -hmm. people make their way to me and what they need more than anything is just permission to feel everything they're feeling and, you know, go through what they're going through and not have it dismissed, um, by, you know, shitty bereavement leave, um, or, you know, just the way that we like (laughs) to tidy up someone's feelings. Yeah. Not two days more like it, but yeah. (laughs) You're right. Um, I'm wondering to go back to the time when you needed that and it wasn't available, um, at least not enough to to connect to where you were at in your life. I do want to talk about the writing uh, shift. Like that feels like such a significant moment in your story where mm-hmm. you really found that as a place to start healing and processing. Um, and I'm wondering, is that true how I just phrased it? Or also simultaneously, had you started therapy or did writing kind of lead to moments when you thought, oh, I should start looking into other opportunities as you were doing your own personal healing with that actual work? Yeah. Um, whatever you can share about that. I was always a writer, you know, since I was a little kid and I was an only child. So I was lonely and bored and I didn't have an iPad. So I had a lot of books and I just, you know, read all the time and I was writing stories by, you know, first grade. And so I didn't want to be a grief therapist when I grew up. I wanted to be a writer. You know, I wanted to be a novelist, a, a you know, a memoirist, a poet. I, I loved just literature. I loved the lives of writers. That was all I wanted to do. I was on track to be, um, Um, I was getting my bachelor's in English with a side of creative writing. And then I was interning at magazines in New York and I was working as a food writer and a travel writer. And, um, those things were great. I mean, my first job out of college was at Vanity Fair. I I was like on track for everything I wanted, but, um, this is, by it's the way, in like, the book, you don't name the magazine. Yeah, I, got, I had to be careful. Yeah, so it's cool to kind but of I get a little more. It, okay, yeah. great. Good, good, good. Yeah. But, you know, after after my parents died, it just some of it began to feel really shallow, you know, to make a living mm-hmm. as a writer in the in the early 2000s. I was, you know, doing, you know, stupid stuff, you know, restaurant reviews and travel writing. Not stupid, but it was very frivolous in comparison to I, what I, I was going it. through. Yeah. And um I think I hit a wall in a lot of places where some friends basically forced me into therapy. <laughs> and okay. I, um, I had been a little resistant to it because I hadn't found anybody that seemed like they would understand. And then also my mother had done so many years of hippie therapy and I was sick of listening to her talk about her therapist. Yeah. <laughs> that I was like, I don't know, I'm not going to go to therapy. Uh-huh. Um, she would 
just fall over laughing to know that I became mm-hmm. a therapist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so <laughs> um, perfect. <laughs> but once I got into it, I loved it, you know, and... Um, well, what and so was I, that moment? What friend was that? Who was that? I mean, I'm trying to remember in the uh, memoir what that moment yeah. was, but I'm thinking like, gosh, if I had community who said, dude, you need to go to, <laughs> you need to start seeing someone and, and oh that they could God. be a person who I listened to also, by the way. It was a good old high school friend who knew me well and knew me before my parents died. And she was just watching me make a mess in my life with alcohol and relationships and just like, you know, just not getting things on track. And um, so she encouraged me into therapy. And it was also around the same time that I started working for Dave Eggers and not 826 LA. And and I was like, oh, you know, there's ways to be really meaningful in the world and to find meaning. I mean, I had hit a place after my dad died when I just was like, what? Is, I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't know yeah. what I'm doing on this planet. Like, mm-hmm. I feel so alone and I feel so worthless. And and then I started volunteering and I was working with these kids in this underserved school district. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm so stupid and selfish. I can't believe I have so much to give. I have so Mm. much I could be doing and offering the world and people who are in need. And I'm sitting around like crying about my, my dumb life when I I have so much that I could be giving. Mm -hmm. Um, And once I realized that it, it really set me off on another track. And I, I went from there to working with homeless people to going back to get my master's in clinical psychology to working with, you know, severely mentally ill, people and then you know finally going into hospice and then into private practice and all the while just being like I have so much to give I know right now you're asking yourself and you're sweet little head what (laughs) it is sweet okay um (laughs) just take it just acknowledge your head for being sweet but i know right now you're asking in your sweet little head how can i support this podcast being in the world and i'm so glad you thought that question did you know we have a patreon account where you can support not just the podcast but our work as a 501c3 nonprofit in the world I want to give a shout out to Renee and Tommy for their recent addition to our community of patrons on patreon.com. All you have to do is go to patreon.com forward slash YG2D. We'll put the link in the show notes and you can commit as little as $1 a month. And I put it a few different ways. That equates to a couple coffees, maybe a couple beers, Let's say it equates to you buying me a little potted plant with a tiny flower in it. When I see, after this episode's release, new patrons come in, that's how I'm going to consider it. I'm going to consider that you gave me a potted flower of acknowledgement for how this podcast matters to you in the world. And you think $1 a month, what is this guy gabbing on and on about? How could that really matter that much? I cannot tell you enough that the patrons we have and the amount we bring in every month is significant because a bunch of people said yes to giving $1 a month. And you can give more. You can give $2 a month. You can give $5 a month. In fact, you should give $100 a month. (laughs) I'm always talking to that one person that's listening right now who could afford to subsidize The work we do putting this podcast in the world with a chunk of change like that and one dollar 
is so generous. $1 a month is so generous. Truly, thank you for all of you that already support the podcast in that way. And for those of you that haven't quite taken that leap, please know it matters. We're paying attention on this side to that kind of support. Also, with ratings and reviews, when I see a new five-star rating come through, and especially when I see some words of acknowledgement in Apple Podcasts, it matters so much to know in that little measurable way that our community of listeners is growing, that you're out in the world listening and loving what you're getting from this show. So that's another answer to your thoughtful question. I caught you thinking in the midst of this episode, how can I support You're Going to Die the podcast? Well, now you know. I mean, I always say that loss happens to us, but how we grieve is up to us. You know, we do have choice around that. We have agency around how we grieve. Um, the loss happens to us. We don't have a choice around that. It happens and it's awful. Um, but how we grieve and how we choose to move through the world after that is entirely up to us. And I think it takes a lot of fumbling and it does take time and takes self-pity and takes uh, sometimes, you know, bouts of victimhood. Um, but victimhood is an interesting, you know, concept and idea. And it, it has a lot of layers, you know, you can look on criticism of me online and book reviews or on social media or something. People be like, I can't believe she's still going on about her dead parents 25 years later, you know? (laughs) And, and they, they look at me as like, I, that I'm, I'm engaging in victimhood. I don't see it that way at all. I don't feel that way. You know, Mm. I feel like I'm trying to talk about these things as a way of giving other people permission. I'm not seeking, I'm not seeking pity or sympathy or those things. I'm trying to talk about it as awareness, you know, um, give other people permission to feel what they're feeling. Um, I think self-compassion is an enormous part of healing and of this work. You know, I, I hated myself for years. I Mm. hated myself for not being there when my mother died. I hated how self-centered I was in my grief. I hated how ignorant I was of what other people struggle with in this world. Um, and that, that doesn't really do anybody any good, right? Me sitting around hating myself. That's a lot of wasted energy. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, I, when I began doing self-compassion work, it was hard. It was hard mm. to do. I cried a lot um, moving through that kind of self-hatred and that ego stuff. But um, now that I've been a therapist for, you know, a decade and a half, I've sat with thousands of people and we're all humans. It's hard to be a human in the world. I tell mm. my kids all this, this all the time. Like it is hard to be a human being in the world. It is yeah. just really hard. No one's got it figured out. No one's mm. doing it perfectly. We all have secrets. We all have shame. We all have terrible things that we have done that we hold ourselves accountable for, that we have mistakes and things we wish we could do over. Or we've had terrible thoughts or we've done dumb shit, you know, all of us, all of us. And 
seeing that day after day after day has enabled me to be like, oh, I'm just a human. <laughs> you know, I'm just like, just a human trying to make my way through all this. And kindness is, is so important and self-compassion and empathy. Like there's really nothing else. Well, that's so interesting. I'm wondering about this, the, that thread, the like part of what maybe broke you from this, the victim feeling like a victim and Sorry if that's not the right wording for what you felt no, like during okay. that time, but the self-pity, whatever the words are to cover that, right? Um, to have compassion for yourself and kindness and love feels like a really important moment in freeing ourselves from that perspective of ourselves. It's almost <laughs> like love doesn't, getting to that self-compassion kind of, it's, oh gosh, go boy, this is new. This is new for me. And it feels really important because I think there's ways that as a, a young boy growing into that young man and losing my mom, I felt the, the pieces of me that were, cause part of your story, let's, let's talk about your, your story in a way I think that connects to this. There's a lot that was going on as a young girl growing up where you're figuring out like how to find that love for yourself. Right. And mm -hmm. I think it's normal for kids to have that. And it seems to me that in the human experience, self pity and victimhood also could probably really easily connect to like self hate or some kind of dissatisfaction with our way of being in the state, in the context of what we're living in. And that yeah. self-compassion is that moment of kind of freeing ourselves maybe, and not immediately, but with the work from yeah. that, like, binding ourselves in the yeah. self-pity. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. This is new. I just suddenly dawned on me no. while you were sharing that. Yeah. We're so hard on ourselves. We're hard on ourselves when we're grieving. We're hard on ourselves when we're going through, you know, difficult life stuff. Um, mm. Where And social media, this is one of the downfalls of it. You know, it exacerbates so much of this. We see everybody's seemingly perfect lives all the time. And everybody's posting their summer vacations and their what they made for dinner and all this crap. And it's, you know, it's, it's real and it's not real. And it's, and we hold ourselves to these standards that don't make any sense. And, um, I get, I'm privy every day to everybody's worst selves. You know, like I get to sit with people and, and they cry with me and they tell me everything that they wish they could have done different or who they, you know, the versions of themselves that they don't like and all the ways they want to change. And so I just see all this like, big, open, bleeding humanity and all of its like messy glory. And it's so beautiful to me. It's so much more beautiful than all the crap on Instagram. Yeah. I think you then maybe too, with your work, I wonder if you think about it this way, it's might be a little too lofty of a, a, a framing, but the chance to have someone give you a version of like love, acceptance, compassion. Part of your work mm -hmm. is seeing someone in these ways, how they're heartbroken, yeah. how they're grieving, how they're broken in general. Yeah. Uh, and to have someone show us what's possible about how we can treat ourselves during those times. Absolutely. Do you feel that? Or And then also yeah. the alternative is the, is there times when you say, wake up, you know, it's time to drop this. It's time to drop this self-pity. Do you have moments like that with clients ever where you have a, a version of calling someone out, you know, to help them transition and does it work? You know, I, um, I think the beauty of therapy is that it's that reflection. It's like, you can sit down with a good therapist and you can drop your biggest bomb on them and they meet you with love and understanding and, you know, I don't even flinch. You could tell me the worst thing that you've ever done. And I will just be like, oh, Ned, I get it, you know? <laughs> and to have that response 
enables you to see it in the same way. Um, so there's that beauty. And then in terms of people who are stuck or who do need a wake up call, there's all kinds of, you know, there's all kinds of ways to do that. Usually it's just a matter of reframing. You can usually just ask a, a question that's like, not sneaky, but like, well, Ned, have you ever thought about it this way? And I'll mm -hmm. like reframe it in some way where all of a sudden the client's like, holy shit, <laughs> you know, and everything that they had, this whole narrative they've been holding will just like fall apart oh, for a boy. minute. And you must be and skilled the, for that moment. And they right? look at it in this mm. new way. That's really profound. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's hard and scary, mm -hmm. you know, and you want to like run, um, because you realize you're going to have to dismantle this, this story you've been carrying around for years. Mm -hmm. um, Your but there's also something so liberating in it. Right. Is that like a motivational interviewing or is there terminology that covers the like questioning of leading someone into their own self-realization? <laughs> I mean, that's the whole job. That's all I do is yeah. just like I gather as much information as I can. I get to know my clients as well as I can and their stories. And and then I can see like, oh, I can see the way they're carrying this and the way mm. that they could maybe shift it. But I don't want to slam them over the head with it. You know, I want them yeah. to kind of make their way to it themselves. So it's a lot of sneaky loaded questions. <laughs> sure. That's good. I love yeah. that. Um, my husband loves it too. When I do it to him. <laughs> yeah, you're like, stop, <laughs> stop therapizing me. Um, that's good. Uh, I've, I've, I have another question. You know, I, it's so, it's wild to be with you, Claire, and feel who you are now. And, and mm -hmm. even before talking with you, I think probably reading anxiety, getting a sense for that, but also, you know, I know we've, we've been in, in space before meeting each other. Yeah. I, I, I know I have a sense for who you are now. And then I read your memoir and I'm like, I know that girl. And oh, yeah. I'm wondering, like, do you, do you have moments of really feeling like her still or, connecting to that part of who you you are i mean this is a big question because i wonder mm -hmm. right it's like how do i know that 26 year old young man you know mm -hmm. that, that, yeah. that is just 20 years ago you know yeah 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 i'm i'm so glad i captured that version of myself in that book mm -hmm. um and well Thank you. She yeah. still exists. You know, she's still inside of me somewhere. Yeah. There's pieces of her that will flare up here and there. If I get really hurt or really scared about mm -hmm. something, she's there for sure, but not as much anymore. Um, you know, even just like 10 years ago, she was more potent inside of me, but not as much these days. And mm -hmm. it's odd to be this year is the year that my oldest child turned the age I was when my parents both got sick. Wow! And so it's been a really interesting reflection of like, God, that's, that's how old I was, mm -hmm. you know, and that's, um, you know, what, what life was like when that happened with me. And, and so it's almost like there's a, a newer generation of that girl coming up but, mm -hmm. and I get to do things differently. You know, I get to take care of myself in ways my parents didn't always take care of themselves. I get to think about generational trauma and what gets passed down and what we inherit. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of things that I'm especially these days thinking about in terms of what we pass down and what we inherit from our parents and our families. Well, it had me thinking about your family and, and this life you have now with your partner. And um, this is a medicine a bit maybe for you. Mm -hmm. Do you relate to it that way? Yeah, absolutely. And I think in some ways 
I've been making mistakes along the way as well, like we always do and mm-hmm. figuring things out when sometimes it's too late or almost too late, you know, yeah. Yeah. I'm married for the second time and <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I've got a blended family and, uh, you know, there's a lot going on, but mm. um I don't think it's ever too late to repair things as well. My ex-husband and I have a great relationship. We co-parent our girls together. I'm going to okay. talk to him like as much as I talk to my husband almost, you know, where it's, mm. it, you know, it's, it's a lot, but we're, we're all kind of trying to figure out how to be the best versions of ourselves. I think. That's right. Sure. Um, thank you. I, I want to touch on some moments that, feel like not exactly in the line of, of conversation we've shared, but they feel like really important things sure. I want to acknowledge that meant a lot to me. First of all, reading your memoir was, was so, so special. Um, also, <laughs> I just want to say this plant the seed or I wonder, this is kind of like not even a part of the interview is like, wh- I'm just thinking, gosh, when, when is Claire's book going to come out? That's like a fiction about grieving and loss and heartbreak. So I'm mm-hmm. just wanting to say that that's the kind of writer you are. You're still the kind of writer who, and I, I'm sure you maybe don't need me to tell you this, but it feels important to say it, who it obviously has written books like you wanted to. And yeah. successfully, and maybe the version of you back then that wanted to write that next great, you know, award-winning fiction uh, mm-hmm. novel, um, that the memoir gave me you in that way too. You know, like mm-hmm. you're that skilled. It really was a journey to be in that storytelling. Um, both important for me in this conversation of grief and and making meaning out of loss but also just like carried me away, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, Thank I, you. I know you're still writing and also like, that's a specific book I want to read by Claire. I'm working on the follow-up memoir <laughs> okay, 20 great. years later called great. the rules of forgiveness. Mm. And it's, uh, it's like great. what happens after the rules of inheritance ends. Mm-hmm. That's <laughs> so, great. Good. Cause a Good lot has hear. happened. Okay. Can't wait to read it. And I will. Um, but I want to, I want to return to a moment in that book that feels important my version of it is my mom dies. I don't have hospice. You know, I was there, but it was, I wasn't present. I didn't have anyone helping me be present. Um, Mm -hmm. and then my other significant loss, uh, that really led to my work with you're going to die is my mother-in-law died in 2012. Mm -hmm. And this is a different experience that really was not led by me. It was led by my father-in-law bringing hospice into that, into that room, you know, into that dying and boy, Claire, getting to your dad's story. Mm. Oh, I just, I feel like your book is so good and that I'm on the verge of tears for the whole thing. And then when I get to your dad's death, I just wept. Yeah. And why I want to say that is because I want to acknowledge a version of like great writer. <laughs> You're so good. A- incredible story. So important. Know that I was this moved and I want to make a moment to talk about that contrast and, and know that that's kind of a, I think it seems to me a core of your story and maybe part of your work then too connects to part of your work here is like, what do you give people where you are now after all that to help them avoid what so broke your heart about your mother's death? And I know you've healed yeah. and forgiven yourself knowing how young you were what it meant to drive that night and stop somewhere, how normal yeah. that was, you know, Yeah. but to get your moment with your dad to yeah. be right there. 
you know, yeah. and to, to like have that even as a healing of, uh, of your mom, your mom's dying, you know, yeah. I just want to make a little room for that. And you can be like, great. That's all great. Thank you. I don't have anything to add, uh, read the book, but also ooh, what's there. No, it's important. There's so much, you know, I work with people every day who, um, you know, like you, like me, just, there's a, there's a lot of problems in this country around death and dying. And, um, I think we saw a lot of that during COVID and the pandemic and people are unprepared to have conversations, to face their own deaths. You know, I think we should be planning for end of life when we are healthy and young. I think we should be always having these conversations. I think Mm -hmm. we should be having them with family, with ourselves. I think we should have plans in place. Um, and we don't, and, and even the pandemic didn't, didn't change that. You know, there was a hot second where people were like, Oh, we should get into end of life planning like around 2020, August of 2020. And then it was gone. It's over. Yeah. Nobody's, nobody wants to talk about it. Pandemic washed um, it away. Yeah. Yeah. But people, you know, and then people are left with, you know, someone is gone and they didn't realize they were going to be gone so fast. They didn't realize they were so close to the end. I mean, when I worked in hospice, people would come onto hospice with like 36 hours to live when they could have been on hospice for weeks, months, you know, mm-hmm. um, could have been having conversations. Could months. Have been I want to highlight that months yeah, they months, could have been on, you months, know? Yeah. You know? Really, and really important. Yeah. It's heartbreaking. And I try to do a lot of work and advocacy around end of life care. And I know a lot of people in that space and I do tandem work with them, but I'm often seeing people on the other side where they're, you know, it's too late and they, they are now looking back and they're like, why didn't anybody tell me? Why didn't doctors tell me? Why didn't, why didn't we have these conversations? And, and it's really, really hard. Um, my father gave me the greatest gift, you know, which was just demanding that I show up for his death and like accompany him to the end. And I didn't want to do it. I went, you know, kicking and screaming for much of it, but it was the greatest gift. I mean, did he, you know, did he ask that specifically? I mean, I know he sat with you, especially reading anxiety. You talk about him, like writing the list, like making you talk about it. Also though, in the memoir, it just feels like, you knowing maybe Mm -hmm. certainly helped by the conversation with him and having lost your mom, like you did. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, he really did. Um, he wanted to stop treatment long before my mother decided to stop treatment, he really wanted to be like, I'm, you know what? I'm dying. I want to go home. I'm dying. Let's like have some conversations, yeah, he, he did name it. Yeah, right. you know? That's and right. I was like, you're not dying. Mm-hmm. And he was like, kiddo, I'm definitely dying. Mm-hmm. I'm 83 and this is it. And, and, mm-hmm. you know, let's do this. And I was like, Oh my God. Um, but it was really, it was really a gift. And, he was an amazing guy and he'd lived an amazing life and he'd been through so much. I mean, he was a POW in World War II um, and he had a lot of knowledge to, to give me. And I'm so glad that I got even a little bit of it because, you know, when I was younger, he was like, oh, my weird like World War II dad that's like, you know, twice as old as anybody else's <laughs> dad. And, um, and, I, and you know, I, I wasn't into the stuff that he really could, you know, impart in life. And, it, and I got just old enough to have some time where I really was able to gain a lot from him. Mm. And I'm grateful. Yeah. And, and perfect. Actually, thank you for saying that. I I really want to acknowledge something, the writing, you know, to return to that and, and how important I feel like it is as, uh, for you and what you do. And, Mm -hmm. and obviously I've said 30 versions of that, but also your invitation to others to write. Mm-hmm. And I want to stay with your dad here and the gift he gave you, this letter he wrote mm-hmm. to your mom that you're, 
Oh my gosh, Claire. Can we talk about that and then kind of transition if we can from that into uh, just your belief in that act, you know, what it means to write and, and the healing power of it and whatever. Yeah. My dad started writing a letter to me um, or was it, to, it was, he was writing a letter to my mother and then he decided to change or he, I don't even know if he decided, but something happened within him emotionally where he switched track and he began writing a letter to me from my mother and everything about his language changed. I mean, his, his, his vocabulary changed and it just took on my mother's voice and it was phenomenal. Um, and I think for him, it was a really meaningful experience. I think when she died, I was 18 years old and he was, 75 years old. And there was so much gap between us emotionally, generationally, um, experience. And I remember we looked at each other after she was gone and we were like, what are we going to do with each other? And I think for him, he was like, what am I going to do with this 18 year old girl? It was hard. You know, I've walked a lot of parents now through the loss of a partner spouse and parenting the kids without them. And I think about what it was like for him to do that for me. And I think when he inhabited my mother's voice and writing that letter to me, um, it was a testament to him and to her and to everything that they had done together. But him really trying to show me, you know, how much she loved me and how much he wanted to honor that and how beautiful that was. Um, I think writing is really important. You know, I know people roll their eyes. I'm not a writer. I don't want to sit down and write. And, you know, it doesn't have to be a big arduous thing, put a pen to paper, put a timer on for five minutes. You know, you don't have to write something profound. You're writing to, to find yourself. You're writing to find words that, that aren't coming out of your mouth. You know, there, this comes from a different place when we write and there's so much power in there, um, to be able to write to someone who's not here or to be able to write a letter to ourselves, even our younger versions of ourselves or, you know, the, the kinds of letters my parents wrote. I mean, there's a lot of power there and people underestimate it or they're afraid of it. Um, and I think that it's something that we always have access to. You know, it's like, it's a tool that's always there. And that's pretty amazing. You don't have to have money. You don't have to be in a certain location. You don't have to have anything, but you can write, you know?
Thanks to Claire for being on the show. If you want to find out more about what Claire's up to, get all the books, go to clairebidwellsmith.com and that link will be in the show notes. Hello, Nick Jana. Well, how's it going? Well, so fast. Ooh, yeah, I know. I wanted to kind of like just get to you. Usually um, takes a while. A lot of knocking and banging going on, going on over there. What's going on? Uh, I just realized uh, <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> well, just say it. Say it. Let's just see. We don't know what we're going to talk about anyway. I just realized I should add an addition to my house, even though I'm renting, which, <laughs> you know, they say don't do that. Um, but I just had a whim and I was like, well, okay. So I bought a super big screen TV first and then it didn't fit. You know, Wait, the problem. what? And then Wait, it didn't is this fit real? <laughs> no. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I, I do feel like I've had that conversation with a lot of people uh, where oh, I'm, geez. Uh, especially like a few years ago when I was, uh, let's say like itinerant and um, didn't like really have like a fixed address and was uh, scrambling, hustling. Mm-hmm. Um, I would, you know, meet up with peers, like old friends and have a, like a fancy dinner and they'd talk about how they um, uh, were upset that they got a, promotion of their job because now they have a lot of money that they don't know what to do with, but they do have to add an addition to their house because oh, of their big yeah. TV. And I'd be sitting there thinking like, <laughs> I'm sleeping in my car tonight. <laughs> Someone said that. Um, let's stay with uh, Nick's uh, personal reality uh, for a little bit, everybody. I just wanted to check in. Nick, Jaina, I know the answer to some of uh, this question, um, but I just wanted to check in and I'm trying to remember if we talked about this before, but um is Nick Jana your legal name? No. <laughs> Great. And um, what is your legal name, Nick Jana? Uh, my last name is Dubrowiak, which I um, wrote about a bit in my last book, the family lineage of that line, uh, mm-hmm. the Dubrowiak line. Um, and the book, real quick? <clears throat> Spectrum. Spectrum, um, yeah. And about... Uh, 28 years ago in San Francisco, actually, I was going to play an open mic, like for the first time at the corner of Hayden Ashbury. And, um, uh, it sounds silly now because as you know, you don't need a last name when you sign up for an open mic. Often they don't even (laughs) say the last name. Yeah. Right. Um, but I was apprehensive about putting my legal last name on the, on the <laughs> open wonder, mic sign up because why. it's, you it's don't so hard say. to pronounce. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but uh, I chose a name that is even harder to pronounce because a lot of people don't know whether the J is pronounced like an H or if it's hi, hi or hey or mm. a, you know. Um, so uh, I don't know. I don't know what the lesson is there, but yeah. <laughs> Well, what I really want to ask you, because I kind of knew uh, all that, um, and I wanted the the listeners to get updated uh, with your name reality, but I, I'm thinking, is that your legal last name now? Uh, well, I got married to your uh-huh. CFO. <laughs> yes. That's how we, that's how you that, always refer to her. It sounds, it sounds like hey, scandalous is, or something. This is Chelsea, Ned's CFO. <laughs> That's how you. <laughs> okay, and <clears throat> it was in our wedding vows, actually. That <clears throat> no, I was um, there for that, and I was one of the few in attendance. And now it makes sense because I had to hand over my CFO. I had to offer the hand of my CFO. <laughs> oh, you should have walked her down the aisle with like yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, I pretty tax, much did tax forms or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, no, I, I legally took her name. So my legal ah. last name now is uh, Coleman and Jaina actually is not a part of it mm-hmm. um, because uh, I, with marrying, you have the opportunity to like involve the other person's name, mm-hmm. but not to just take some, take on your stage name. <laughs> That's right. So what I want everybody to know, listeners, that you have two two uh, hosts here, two uh, podcast representatives, uh, two guys in the world who took their their wife's last name. Oh, yeah. And I've never talked to you about this, Nick. So that's kind of what I've been getting to all this other stuff. I was like, just filler mostly, devil. but I wanted people to get caught up on your name story because it's a it's a it's a unique one. Um also fraught with with some drama but we'll save that for another episode um what i want to know is why did you why did you make uh why did you take chelsea's last name um part of it was like uh family unity which is now funny because uh, uh, you know her son my stepson's last name isn't the same <laughs> yeah but it's in there you know <clears throat> so i don't know we just thought like legal situations, airport situations or whatever, when it makes it clear that we're a family Mm -hmm. and we have the same name, I guess we just didn't want three different last names amongst the three of us. So we do have like a bit of unity in our names. I think that's the biggest thing, you know? Um, and, uh, yeah, there were some other reasons, but I, I think it felt like, and maybe you have the same situation too, of like, it's normally, um, almost like without discussion of like, of course the woman's going to take the man's name, you know? But I think we would probably uh, uh, imagine that it should be an equal, there should be no assumptions, I guess, you know, like it Mm -hmm. could go either way and just let's make a decision based on whatever aesthetics, pronounceability, you know, you all, you never much cared for your last name or whatever it is. Um, Yeah. Let's go for this way. You know, I I think that's a good way to do it rather than like it being the default that you're just going to like, the woman's going to take the man's name. Yeah. The easy answer I think in, in our times is the one that you just all want. And I'm sure it doesn't go that way for everybody. It went that way for us, mm-hmm. but also what a weird thing to like combine and combine names and hyphenate names and have kids and try to get the kids folded into what the name is and how do you pick anyway? Um, I'm glad to get that update on your decision. I am going to, use this moment for the listener's sake, who's out there thinking, what the hell is this uh, podcast dealing with death and dying and grief doing, spending time sharing about last names. And so I'm going to, I'm going to lasso this horse in because I want to, <laughs> I want to, I want to answer this question and, and heavy, heavy handedly bring it into the death and dying conversation. Oh, I thought maybe it's because of the screen name that I entered as I logged well, in. Well, I don't even session. know what that is. Everybody popped in. As, <laughs> well, I won't say it. I don't know what, I don't know what's going on there. I'm not going to, I'm not going to say that name. When I logged into this portal, I said, what's your name? Which I don't think it's ever asked me that before. You just, just came up with this name? Yeah. Nice. It's a hyphenated name. <laughs> <laughs> I'd even make that connection. I just typed Stephen Cook gadget um, <laughs> because I was at the grocery store yesterday and, you know, they have those little signs above the aisles that say what's in them, you know, like mm-hmm. peas, uh, rice, beans, whatever. Mm-hmm. There was one of those little placards said cook gadgets. Oh, that's great. This is <laughs> and a I just was like, <clears throat> start, you know, you probably do this, like did this little routine in my head of like an, an upset British man who's like, 
Well, <laughs> my name is Stephen Cook Gadget. I don't think it's appropriate. <laughs> That's that funny. Name on this. <laughs> I so appreciate that you had that moment. And I love that you tried to fold me into like, you do this, right? Where you suddenly <laughs> imagine a bridge. <laughs> uh, no, I love the unfolding, like what if realities, um, especially the absurd ones. Okay. So this, this is a lot I'm going to tie together for you listeners. Um, so yes, Nick joined the call. He changed his name, not to Nick Jana, but Stephen Cook Gadget. Now we know why <laughs> that last name is hyphenated. So it does connect to this conversation around last names and hyphenating last names. Uh, the update also, again, is that Nick and I took our wife's last names. Um, what Nick hasn't asked me, and I asked him this, and I'm not mad that you didn't ask me, Nick. I just want to use my answer to bring us into this death and dying conversation. There's a few reasons why I took Sarah's last name. But one of those reasons is because I feel like we don't often get a chance to readily, unless we choose to upset maybe other lives, give ourselves a little version of a death in in life like it was for me to take Sarah's name. It actually felt like I want to be the kind of person who doesn't like doesn't take it seriously. And, and doesn't, doesn't want like, not even like about like, I really love her last name or I'm going to be like the good man. I mean, some of this stuff was like in there, right. Being able to be someone in the world who says like, no, I took my wife's last name. Like that's a statement. And, and it means a lot to me to be a person who could say that and maybe led, maybe not led as much by a lot of that stuff, but led more of the, more by the, I'm just, I just want to let go, you know, like this identity, this last name that I've had, the way it represents some kind of family lineage, which I love and I honor, you know, but I don't need it honored in that way. Like, I think one of the reasons why I took Sarah's last name was to have a little bit of like an ego death or like a metaphorical death. Um, and I do mean this, everyone, I'm not trying to just land this in the death and dying conversation, but that's my answer. Can I ask a a Mm follow-up? Um, do you think, it would have been a tougher decision to do that if, for example, you got married like 10 years later into your like, you know, public life of being Ooh, known yeah, with, with a name. Because I found myself in that yeah, position. I think I so. Like, Will I change my my general name, my public name? And it's like, I could, but like, I, I know that it's so hard to do that and have it actually work. Like, yeah. I can't even convince people that I don't live in Portland anymore. I haven't lived there in over 10 <laughs> yeah. years, but I just went on a trip where like everywhere I went, people would be like, Oh, I got to make it up to Portland soon. I'm like, okay, why? don't you live there? It's like, I don't know what I can do to make that change. And so I know like if I tried to change my name publicly, it just wouldn't like propagate, no. you know? Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and that is something I've been thinking about you cause, cause I, I call you Nick Jane actually very readily. Uh, mm-hmm. that's who I think of you as that's how I've labeled you. And, uh, um, and it does connect to a persona that's visible, that's an author. And so yes, for sure, it would have been a tricky thing to change my name visibly, but I will say similarly to what I think you've defaulted to, I wouldn't have done it. I would have just left like social media presence. Um, I maybe would have like, we've made time for talked about it openly, Mm -hmm. but I wouldn't have been like, I'm changing everything, all the social media, all my bios on the websites. I would have just probably left it. Cause I think 
what you describe makes sense to me is this context where you're with a, with your family, you're traveling, the legality might matter, the name connectedness might matter, like certain contexts that don't have anything to do with being a performer or yeah. a public figure or whatever it is. And also, um, I don't, yeah, no, that's it. Yep. That's my answer. I'll stop there. Mm-hmm. Thanks, yeah. Nick. Wow. The things we talk about. Would you ever change your name, your last name to cook gadget? <laughs> I'm starting to, I'm starting to consider it now and I'm it not going to say sound, no. It has a nice ring to it. Yeah. I it? love it. I want him. I want Steven to be a character in an upcoming short story or a book. So, um, if that happens, then maybe I'll do the next step and take on the last name myself. Wow. Yeah. And then I'll say, you heard it here first, listeners. Nick's, Nick's, Nick's writing about me again. He used my name in his book. All right, everybody. Oh, I see. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Wow, what a journey you've been through if you made it this far. Glad you're here. If you're still here, thanks for listening to the podcast. Thank you, Nick Jana. Until next time, everybody. Bye bye. 